Section four of the Sunny Side by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four, part one. Wartime. O. B. E. I know a captain of industry who made big bombs for the R. F. C and collared a lot of L.F.D., and he, thank God, has the O.B.E. I know a lady of pedigree who asked some soldiers out to tea, and said, Dear me, and yes, I see, and she, thank God, has the O.B.E. I know a fellow of twenty-three who got a job with a fat M.P., not caring much for the infantry, and he, thank God, has the O.B.E. I had a friend, a friend, and he just held the line for you and me, and kept the Germans from the sea, and died without the O.B.E. Thank God he died without the O.B.E. Armageddon The conversation had turned, as it always does in the smoking rooms of golf clubs, to the state of poor old England, and Porkins had summed the matter up. He had marched round in ninety-seven that morning, followed by a small child with an umbrella and an arsenal of weapons, and he felt in form with himself. "'What England wants,' he said, leaning back and puffing at his cigar, "'what England wants is a war.' another whisky and soda waiter we're getting flabby all this pampering of the poor is playing the very deuce with the country a bit of a scrap with a foreign power would do us all the good in the world he disposed of his whisky at a draught we're flabby he repeated the lower classes seem to have no sense of discipline nowadays we want a war to brace us up it is well understood in olympus that porkins must not be disappointed what will happen to him in the next world i do not know but it will be something extremely humorous in this world however he is to have all that he wants accordingly the gods got to work in the little village of ozpovat which is in the southeastern corner of Ruritania, there lived a maiden called Maria Strultz, who was engaged to marry Captain Topsk. I fancy, said one of the gods, that it might be rather funny if Maria jilted the captain. I have an idea that it would please Porkins. Whatever has Maria, began a very young god, but he was immediately suppressed, really said the other i should have thought it was sufficiently obvious you know what these mortals are he looked round to them all is it agreed then it was agreed so maria strolz jilted the captain now this as you may imagine annoyed captain tomsk he commanded a frontier fort on the boundary between ruritania and Essenland and his chief amusement in a dull life was to play cards with the Essenland captain, who commanded the fort on the other side of the river. When Maria's letter came, 
he felt that the only thing to do was to drown himself. On second thoughts, he decided to drown his sorrows first. He did this so successfully that at the end of the evening he was convinced that it was not Maria who had jilted him, but the Essenland captain who had jilted Maria, whereupon he rowed across the river and poured his revolver into the Essenland flag, which was lying over the fort. Maria was thus revenged. He went home to bed, and woke the next morning with a bad headache. "'Now we're off,' said the gods in Olympus. In Diedeldorf, the captain of Estland, the leader-writers proceeded to remove their coats. "'The blood of every true Essenlander,' said the leader-writer of the Diedeldorf Patriot, after sending out for another pot of beer, "'will boil when it hears of this fresh insult to our beloved flag, an insult which can only be wiped out with blood.' Then, seeing that he had two bloods in one sentence, he crossed the second one out, and substituted the sword— and lit a fresh cigarette. For years Essenland has writhed under the provocations of Ruritania, but has preserved a dignified silence. This last insult is more than flesh and blood can stand. Another blood had got in, but it was a new sentence, and he thought it might be allowed to remain. We shall not be accused of exaggeration if we say that Essenland would lose, and rightly lose, her prestige in the eyes of Europe if she let this affront pass unnoticed. In a day she would sink from a first-rate to a fifth-rate power. But he didn't say how. The Chancellor of Essenland, in a speech gravely applauded by both sides of the house, announced the steps he had taken. An ultimatum had been sent to Ruritania, demanding an apology, an indemnity of a hundred thousand marks, and the public degradation of Captain Tomsk, whose epaulets were to be torn off by the commander-in-chief of the Essenland army in the presence of a full corps of cinematograph artists. Failing this, war would be declared." Ruritania offered the apology, the indemnity, and the public degradation of Captain Tomsk, but urged that this last ceremony would better be performed by the commander-in-chief of the Ruritanian army. Otherwise, Ruritania might as well cease to be a sovereign state, for she would lose her prestige in the eyes of Europe and sink to the level of a fifth-rate power. There was only one possible reply to this, and Essenland made it. She invaded Ruritania. "'Aren't they wonderful?' said the gods in Olympus to each other. "'But haven't you made a mistake?' asked the very young god. "'Porkins lives in England, not Essenland.' "'Wait a moment,' said the others." In the capital of Borovia, the leader-writer of the Borovian Patriot got to work. "'How does Borovia stand?' he asked. 
if Essenlund occupies Ruritania? Can any thinking man in Barovia feel safe with the enemy at his gate? The Barovian peasant, earning five marks a week, would have felt no less safe than usual, but then he could hardly be described as a thinking man. It is vital to the prestige of Borovia that the integrity of Ruritania should be preserved. Otherwise, we may resign ourselves at once to the prospect of becoming a fifth-rate power in the eyes of Europe. And in a speech gravely applauded by all parties, the Borovian chancellor said the same thing. So the imperial army was mobilized, and amidst a wonderful display of patriotic enthusiasm by those who were remaining behind the barovian troops marched to the front and there you are said the gods in olympus but even now began the very young god doubtfully silly isn't felicia the ally of essenland isn't marksland the ally of barovia isn't England the ally of the ally of the ally of the country which holds the balance of power between Marksland and Felicia? But if any of them thought the whole thing stupid, or unjust, or their prestige, said the gods gravely, trying not to laugh. Oh, I see, said the very young god. And when, a year later, the hundred-thousandth English mother woke up to read that her boy had been shot, I am afraid she shed foolish tears and thought that the world had come to an end. Poor, short-sighted creature. She didn't realize that Porkins, who had marched round in ninety-six the day before, was now thoroughly braced up. What babies they all are! said the very young god. Same old crossing, same old boat, same old dust round Rouen way, same old nasty one-franc note, same old mercy si vous play, same old scramble up the line, same old horse-box, same old straw, same old weather, wet or fine, same old blooming war. Hey, lore, it isn't a dream, just as it used to be, every bit. Same old whistle and same old bang, and me out again to be it. Twas up by Luz I got me first. I just dropped gently, crawled a yard, and rested sickish with a thirst. The eat, I thought, and smoking hard. Then someone hands me out a drink what poets call the cooling draught, and seeing him I done a think. Blighty, I thinks, and laughed. I'm not a soldier, natural, no more than most of us today. I runs a business with a pal, meaning the missus, Fulham way, green grocery, the cabbages and fruit and things I take meself, and she has dafts and crocuses, a smiling on a shelf blighty i thinks the doctor knows he talks of punctured damn the things it's me for blighty down i goes i ain't a singer but i sings oh oo goes ohm i sort of ums and oo's for dear old england's shores and by and by southampton comes blighty i says and roars 
I suppose I thort I'd done my bit. I suppose I thort the war would stop. I saw meself a-getting fit with missus at the little shop. The same like as it used to be. The same old markets. Same old crowd. The same old marrers. Same old me. But er as proud as proud. The regiment is where it was. I'm in the same old ninth platoon. New faces most, and keen because they thinks the thing is ending soon. I ain't complaining, mind, but still, when later on some newish bloke stops one and laughs, a blighty bill, I'll wonder, where's the joke? Same old trenches, same old view, same old rats as blooming tame, same old dugouts, nothing new, same old smell, the very same, same old bodies out in front, same old strafe from two till four, same old scratching, same old unt same old bloody war oh lor it isn't a dream it's just as it used to be every bit same old whistle and same old bang and me to stay here till i'm it toby it will save trouble if i say at once that i know nothing about horses this will be quite apparent to you of course before i have finished but i don't want you to suppose that it is not also quite apparent to me i have no illusions on the subject neither i imagine has toby to me there are only two kinds of horse chestnuts roans bay rums i know nothing of all these i can only describe a horse simply as a nice horse or a nasty horse toby is a nice horse toby of course knows much more about men than i do about horses and no doubt he describes me professionally to his colleagues as a flea-bitten fellow standing about eighteen hoofs but when he is not being technical i like to think that he sums me up to himself as a nice man at any rate i am not allowed to wear spurs and that must weigh with a horse a good deal i have no real right to toby the signalling officer's official mount is a bicycle but a bicycle in this weather and there is toby and somebody must ride him and as i point out to the other subalterns it would only cause jealousy if one of them rode him and why would it create more jealousy than if you do asked one of them well i said you're the officer commanding platoon number fifteen fifteen now why should the officer commanding the fifteenth platoon ride a horse when the officer commanding the nineteenth he reminded me that there were only sixteen platoons in a battalion it's such a long time since i had anything to do with platoons that i forgot all right we'll say the sixteenth why shouldn't he have a horse of all the unjust well you see what recriminations it would lead to now i don't say i'm more valuable than a platoon commander or more effective on a horse but at any rate there aren't sixteen of me there's only one signalling officer and if there is a spare horse over what about the bombing officer said o c platoon fifteen carelessly 
I had quite forgotten the bombing officer. Of course, he is a specialist, too. Yes, quite so, but if you would only think a little, I said, thinking hard all the time, you would, well, put it this way, the range of a mills bomb is about fifty yards. The range of a field telephone is several miles. Which of us is more likely to require a horse? And the sniping officer, he went on dreamily. This annoyed me. You don't shoot snipe from horseback, I said sharply. You're mixing up shooting and hunting, my lad. And in any case, there are reasons, special reasons, why I ride Toby, reasons of which you know nothing. Here are the reasons. One, I think I have more claim to a horse called Toby than has a contributor to Our Feathered Friends, or whatever paper the sniping officer writes for. Two, when I joined the army, Celia was inconsolable. I begged her to keep a stiff upper lip, to which she replied that she could do it better if I promised not to keep a bristly one. I pointed out that the country wanted bristles, and though, between ourselves, we might regard it as a promising face spoilt for a tradition, still, discipline was discipline. And so the bristles came and remained until the happy day when the war office, at the risk of losing the war, made them optional. Immediately they were uprooted. Now the colonel has only one fault. I have been definitely promised my second star in 1927, so he won't think I am flattering him with a purpose. He likes mustaches. His own is admirable, and I have no wish for him to remove it. But I think he should be equally broad-minded about mine. You aren't really more beautiful without it, he said. A mustache suits you. My wife doesn't think so, I said firmly. I had the war office on my side, so I could afford to be firm. The colonel looked at me, and then he looked out of the window, and made the following remarkable statement. Toby, he said gently to himself, doesn't like clean-shaven officers. This hadn't occurred to me. I let it sink in. Of course, I said at last, one must consider one's horse. I quite see that. With a bicycle, he said, it's different. And so there you have the second reason. If the bombing officer rode Toby, I should shave again tomorrow, and then where would the battalion be? Ruined! So Toby and I go off together. Up till now he has been good to me. He has bitten one company commander, removed another, and led the colonel a three-mile chase across country after him. So if any misunderstanding occurs between us, there will be good precedent for it. So far, my only real trouble has been once when billeting. Billeting is delightful fun. You start three hours in advance of the battalion, which means that if the battalion leaves at eight in the morning, you are up in the fresh of day when the birds are singing. 
you arrive at the village and get from the mayor or the town manger a list of possible hostesses entering the first house labelled officers five you say vous avez un lit pour un officier ici n'est-ce pas vive la france she answers pas un lit and you go to the next house vous avez place pour saint homme oui non says she and so on by and by the battalion arrives and everybody surrounds you where are my men going where is my billet where's c company's mess have you found anything for the pioneers and so one knows what it is to be popular well the other day the major thought he'd come with me just to give me an idea how it ought to be done i say nothing of the result but for reasons connected with toby i hope he won't come again for in the middle of a narrow street crowded with lorries he jumped off his horse flung i think that's the expression flung me the reins and said just wait here while i see the mare a moment the major's horse i can describe quite shortly a nasty big black horse toby i have already described as a nice horse but he had been knee-deep in mud inspecting huts for nearly half an hour and was sick of billeting i need not describe two hundred lorries on a dark evening to you and so seeing that you know the constituents i must let you imagine how they all mixed this is a beastly war but it has its times and when our own particular bit of the battle is over and what is left of the battalion is marching back to rest i doubt if even in england which seems very far off you will find two people more contented with the morning than toby and i as we jog along together common seated in your comfortable club my very dear sir or in your delightful drawing-room madam you may smile pityingly at the idea of a mascot saving anybody's life what will be will be you say to yourself or in italian to your friends and to suppose that a charm round the neck of a soldier will divert a german shell is ridiculous but out there through the crumps things look otherwise common has sat on the mantelpiece at home an ugly little ginger dog with a bit of red tape for his tongue and two black beads for his eyes he viewed his limited world with an air of innocent impertinence very attractive to visitors common he looked and common he was called with a christian name of howard for registration for six months he sat there and no doubt he thought that he had seen all that there was to see of the world when the summons came which was to give him so different an outlook on life for that summons meant the breaking up of his home master was going wandering from trench to trench mistress from one person's house to another person's house she no doubt would take common with her or perhaps she couldn't be bothered with an ugly little ginger dog 
and he would be stored in some repository, boarded out in some Olympic kennel. Or do you think possibly that Master might... He looked very wistful that last morning, so wistful that Mistress couldn't bear it, and she slipped him in hastily between the revolver and the boracic powder, just to look after you, she said. So come and came with me to France. His first view of the country was at Rouen, when he sat at the entrance to my tent and hooshed the early morning flies away, his next at a village behind the lines, where he met stout fellows of D Company, and took the centre of the table at mess in the apple orchard, and, moreover, was introduced to a French maiden or two, with whom, at the instigation of the seconds in the business, her mother and myself, a prolonged but monotonous conversation in the French tongue ensued. Common, under suitable pressure, barked idiomatically, and the maiden, carefully prompted, replying with the native for bow-wow. A pretty greenwood scene beneath the apple-trees, and in any decent civilization the great adventure would have ended there. But Common knew that it was not only for this that he had been brought out, and that there was more arduous work to come. Once more he retired to the valise, for we were making now for a vill, for a heap of bricks near the river. You may guess the river. It was about this time that I made a little rhyme for him. There was a young puppy called Howard, who at fighting was rather a coward. He never quite ran when the battle began, but he started at once to bow-wow hard. A good poet is supposed to be superior to the exigencies of rhyme, but I am afraid that, in any case, Common's reputation had to be sacrificed to them. To be lyrical over anybody called Howard Common, without hinting that he, well, try for yourself. Anyhow, it was a lie, as so much good poetry is. There came a time when valises were left behind, and life for a fortnight had to be sustained on a pack. One seems to want very many things, but there was no hesitation about Common's right to a place, so he came to see his first German dugout, and to get a proper understanding of this dead, bleached land, and the great work which awaited him there. It was to blow away shells and bullets when they came too near the master, in whose pocket he sat. In this he was successful. But I think that the feat in which he takes most pride was performed one very early summer morning. A telephone line had to be laid, and, for reasons obvious to common, rather rapidly. It was laid safely, a mere nothing to him by this time. But when it was joined up to the telephone in the front line, then he realized that he was called upon to be not only a personal mascot, but a mascot to the battalion. And he sat himself upon the telephone and called down a blessing on that cable, so that it remained whole for two days and a night, 
when, by all the rules, it should have been in a thousand pieces. "'And even if I didn't really do it all myself,' he said, "'anyhow, I did make some of the men in the trench smile a little that morning, "'and there wasn't so very much smiling going on just then, you know. "'After that morning he lived in my pocket, "'sometimes sniffing at an empty pipe, "'sometimes trying to lead letters from the mistress, "'which joined him every day.' We had gone north to a more gentlemanly part of the line, and his duties took but little of his time, so that anything novel, like a pair of pliers, or an order from the director of army signals, was always welcome. To begin with, he took up rather more than his fair share of the pocket, but he rapidly thinned down. Alas, in the rigors of the campaign, he also lost his voice, and his little black collar, his only kit, disappeared. Then, just when we seemed settled for the winter, we were ordered south again. Common knew what that meant, a busy time for him. We moved down, slowly, and he sampled billet after billet, but we arrived at last and sat down to wait for the day. And then he began to get nervous. Always he was present when the operations were discussed. He had seen all the maps. He knew exactly what was expected of us. And he didn't like it. It's more than a fellow can do, he said. At least to be certain of. I can blow away the shells in front and the shells from the right. But if Master's map is correct... "'We're going to get enfiladed from the left as well, and one can't be everywhere. "'This wants thinking about.' "'So he dived, head downwards, into the deepest recesses of my pocket, "'and abandoned himself to thought. "'A little later he came up with a smile. "'Next morning I stayed in bed and the doctor came. "'Common looked over his shoulder as he read the thermometer.' A hundred and four, said Common. Golly, I hope I haven't overdone it. He came with me to the clearing station. I only just blowed a germ at him, he said wistfully, one I found in his pocket. I only just blowed it at him. We went down to the base hospital together. We went back to England. And in the hospital in England... Common suddenly saw his mistress again. "'I've brought him back, missus,' he said. "'Here he is. Have I done well?' He sits now in a little basket lined with flannel, a hero returned from the war. Round his neck he wears the regimental colours, and on his chest will be sewn whatever medal is given to those who have served faithfully on the western front.' Seated in your comfortable club, my very dear sir, or in your delightful drawing-room, madam, you smile pityingly. Or perhaps you don't. End of section 4